Well, it, here we are at Christmas, right? You know, there's a lot of us here this morning, and there, there's one thing that all of us, even though we come from different backgrounds, different places, different stations in life, there's one thing that all of us have in common, right? And that's that we all, if we're here, have had a birthday. And we celebrate that every year, don't we? You know, and it's, it's remembered at least by our immediate family and by us ourselves and with the uh, uh, social media of the day, you know, I get reminders every day of a lot of your birthdays as well. So, you know, birthdays now are a lot more common and perhaps because of that we don't take them as seriously as we used to. When you get my age, they roll around, it's just another day, right? But no birthday has ever, ever, ever been remembered throughout history so widely is the birth of Jesus Christ, our Savior. You know, the passages that Darby read from the Old Testament prophets hundreds and hundreds of years prior to his birth, uh, you know, reminded us that this is coming. And that, you know, the reflection of that brings great hope into my life looking to the future. Because, you know what, if God prophesied that hundreds of years before and it came true, right, Guess what that means for you and I that are here today that believe and trust in Christ as our Savior? We can bank on that. The faithfulness of God never, ever, ever fails. So that's another great blessing of Christmas, right? But we know that there's no real evidence that Jesus was born on December 25th. I hope that doesn't upset you, you know, that we've set that date apart. In fact, the one small bit of evidence that we do have seems to go against that date, right? In Luke chapter 2 that Darby read from, that we have the announcement of his birth. It was made to shepherds when they were in their fields with their sheep. Well, shepherds are not in the fields with their sheep on December 25th. It's too cold. The grass isn't green. It's not growing. You, you supplement sheep's uh, feed at that time of year in the barn, not out in the fields. So typically the shepherds would only go out to graze their sheep in the spring and summer months. Uh, between March and September. So December 25th, where did it come from? It was actually just a date that came about by consensus during the early Christian centuries, and it's been preserved by tradition. But you know, as we think about that, the date really doesn't matter, does it? When you get down to the nuts and bolts of it, the important thing is that Jesus was born, right? And the interesting fact that so many remember his birth. Why, why is that? Do you ever contemplate that? Why do so many people that don't have anything to do with Christianity at all remember his birth? Um, it's true that many remember it because they are Christians, but there are billions and billions of people on this planet that remember Christmas as the birth of Christ. Why is that? And it's... it's um, the birth, I'm sorry, why is the birth of this one man so seized upon the minds and the imaginations of men and women. You know, that's actually, uh, that thought, the birth of Christ and the December 25th is us celebrating that, is a great witnessing tool. I've used that before when I'm sharing the gospel with somebody of another faith in particular, of why, you know, does anybody celebrate Buddha's birth? You know, I've never heard of that. You know, especially not the entire world, Billions of people doing that. But answers to that question are found in what I've titled this sermon, The Paradox of Christmas. We can find the answers to 
why so many people celebrate this in the paradoxes of the Christmas story. And there are quite a few of them. One obvious paradox is the purity in the account of the birth of the child to an unwed mother who was a virgin. Mary, we're told in Luke chapter 1, was troubled by the angel's announcement and asked in pure innocence, how can this be since I'm a virgin? We also see the purity in the life of Joseph, her, her engaged husband, who was not the father of the baby, but who believed the announcement of the angel. So he shielded Mary by marrying her. Another paradox that follows that one is the story of joy in what would normally be a great tragedy. Normal circumstances of Mary in her culture, in her time of being pregnant, out of wedlock, would have exposed her to vicious public exposure. And actually, the penalty for that was stoning. That was the prescribed penalty for fornication in Israel. But she should have been in great anguish. She should have been very distraught over the fact that here I am with child and I don't have a husband. But when Mary went to her cousin Elizabeth to announce the, the pregnancy that she was, the baby she was carrying, Elizabeth breaks forth and prays to God instead of trying to shield her from being stoned to death. And she ascribes blessings on Mary. And Mary herself responds with the great hymn of praise that Scripture, the title in it, calls the Great Magnificat. So instead of being filled with anxiety and, and um, fear, she praises God. Isn't that a paradox? You know, she should have been scared to death. I'm going to get stoned. She Instead, she sings praise to her God. And there are many other contrasts in this story as well. There's the announcement of the birth of the baby uh, to the shepherds. As Shane told us uh, last Sunday, that this is the lowest level of ancient Jewish society, shepherds tending sheep in the field. And who brought that announcement? The angels, certainly figures of great stature and glory. There's the neglect of Jesus by his own people, while the Gentile wise men came to worship him. And yet, in this great story, so filled with paradoxes, there's one paradox that stands out above all of the rest, and perhaps more than any of the other, commends the account of this birthday to many people. And that, of course, is the one born in such lowly surroundings, in a stable, from poor, poor parents, laid in an animal's manger. Nevertheless, this person was the God of glory whose splendor, if you go back and read Isaiah, the great prophet in in chapter 6, the splendor of the majesty of Christ sitting on his throne surpassed that even of the angels that came to announce his birth to the shepherds. And yet here he is, a baby, the king of kings and lord of lords in a manger, in a stable. He's God in a stable the supreme sovereign of the universe among the lowly cattle that he he himself created. That's the paradox, the incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us. And, you know, that paradox did not escape the biblical writers. We see clearly in Luke's gospel, the best known of the story in Luke chapter 2. Darby read that for us, so we won't read the text. But in verse 1, we see a reference to Caesar Augustus who was in that day the supreme and powerful leader of the world. And now, 
to help us understand how powerful and how well-liked he was of the people there, the world was in absolute turmoil for 20 years prior to this time. And now with Caesar there, there was great wealth flowing through the society. There was, there was an empire that had been established. Peace had actually been established. And Rome prospered greatly during that time. And Luke mentions this guy, Caesar Augustus, at the, at the opening of the account of Jesus' birth. So to us, and certainly to all of them that lived then, the contrast between the power, the, the pomp, and the, the fame, and the glory of Augustus, and the weakness of the child, and obscurity, and the, hum, the humility of the baby in Bethlehem, that's very, very op, uh, obvious to us all. And next, through Luke's account here, we can see the downward progression of the status of the five characters. He starts with the pinnacle guy, Caesar Augustus. Then um, Quirinius is the next guy that he mentions. He's the governor of Syria. And he's in Joseph and Mary, and Jesus are mentioned as well. But at the peak of the social structure, we have Caesar. Quirinius is further down, yet still a man of prestige and power. Joseph is still lower than that, just a working man, from Nazareth, and after that comes Mary, and in this culture, unfortunately, women, therefore, were further down the social ladder, you know, according to the values of the day, but at the very lowest of that ladder was Jesus Christ himself, the King of Kings, lowest on the social ladder at this time. He's just an infant, the poorest of the poor, as far from Caesar as anyone could possibly be, and yet... We know infinitely above Caesar in both the majesty and person of his dignity. Next we see in that same context we've already read in verses 8 through 15 the details of his birth. On the night the angels prepared, I'm sorry, on the night the angels appeared near Bethlehem, Caesar would have been sleeping in Rome on a golden bed beneath sheets of fine linen. The highest thread count sheets there were. That's what he had on his bed. He would have been attended by servants that protected by the Praetorian Guard would have been all around and the many Roman legions. This guy had nothing to fear from society attacking. He could sleep peacefully in his fine quarters. But as we know, the contrast of that, the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, placed in a manger, and instead of guards guarding him, he had animals around about him. The paradox of the incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us, has undoubtedly commended the story of Christmas to billions of people around the world. But the word of God as a whole builds and builds and builds on that. For example, the Bible teaches us that Jesus descended from the peak of glory to this lowly position in order that he might raise us, you and I, right here today, from our lowly position to his glory. Is that not a paradox? I, that, that, I almost have trouble saying that. The King of kings and the Lord of lords lowered himself. He became poor so that you and I may become rich. The great preacher Donald Gray Barnhouse did a great job of illustrating this paradox with eight of what he called Christmas, the contrasts of Christmas. First, Barnhouse compared Luke 2.11 with John 1.12. In Luke 2.11, the angels are speaking to shepherds and they're saying, quote, For unto you 
is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. John 1, in John 1.12, John's writing of the new birth that comes to those who believe on Jesus. John 1.12 says, quote, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The point of this is that Jesus underwent a human birth so that you and I who believe on him might have a heavenly birth. Isn't that awesome? That's, think of that contrast. He took on human flesh so that we can, believing in him, become children of the living God and have a um, heavenly birth. Secondly, there's the contrast between Luke 2.7 and John 14.2. Luke 2.7 says, And she gave birth to her firstborn and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the inn. John 14.2, In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? Jesus took his place in a manger and a stable so that we could have heavenly mansions. That's quite a contrast, right? Stable, mansion. And he did that for us. Third, if you take Matthew 2.11 and place it alongside Galatians 3.26, Matthew 2.11 says, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. Galatians 3.36, 3.26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Here we learn that Jesus became a member of the human family so that you and I might become members of the family of God. Fourth, if you compare Luke 2.51 with Galatians 5.1, Luke 2.51 is written in the days of Jesus' childhood, of which it is said, quote, And he went down with them, and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. By contrast, Galatians 5.1 reads, For freedom in Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So here we see that Jesus himself subjected himself to others so that we, you and I who believe in Christ, through the power of his spirit at work within us, might be made free. He submitted so that we would be made free. Fifthly, in Philippians 2, 6 through 7, we're told that Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Then in 1 Peter 5, 4, we're reminded that when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So in contrasting these passages, we see that Jesus laid his glory aside so that what? We might receive glory. He laid his aside so that we might receive it. Sixth, in Matthew 8.20, Matthew 8.20 says that during the days of his earthly ministry, the Lord was so poor that he had no place to lay his head. We, on the other hand, 2 Corinthians 8.9 tells us through his poverty have been made rich. The seventh contrast between Luke 2.16 and Luke 15.10. Luke 2.16, on the occasion of his coming to earth, he was welcomed by shepherds. It says, and they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Luke 15.10, we're told that we, on the occasion of our second birth, on the occasion of us being born again, are rejoiced over by angels. Jesus was welcomed by shepherds. We're welcomed by angels. Finally, we're told in Matthew 2.13 that Herod, that wicked and deceitful king, 
sought the young child to destroy him. Jesus was pursued by this evil ruler so that, according to Hebrews 2.14, he might destroy that far more dangerous and evil ruler that pursues you and I. When we put all these texts together, we see a fantastic, beautiful pattern of our Lord's work on our behalf. We see that Jesus endured a human birth to give us a new spiritual birth. We, he occupied a stable that we might occupy a mansion. He had an earthly mother so that we might have a heavenly father. He became subject that we might become free. He left, he left his glory to give us glory. He was poor that we might be rich. He was welcomed by shepherds at his birth, whereas we were welcomed by angels at our new birth. He was hunted by Herod that we might be delivered from the grasp of Satan himself. That's the great paradox of the Christmas story. It is that which makes it so irresistibly attractive to billions of people around the world, whether they fully trust Christ as Savior or not. It's the reversal of the roles of God at his cost for our benefit. His cost for our benefit. But we know that it's not for our benefit alone. It's for the benefit of countless others that are still walking on this earth that don't know Christ as Savior. Now, you might be asking, how? How can the paradox of God becoming man, this paradox of the Christmas story, how can that benefit other people? How can it benefit my coworkers? How can it benefit our family members that don't know Christ? How can it benefit the neighbor across the street and to the left and the right of us? How can it benefit my classmates at school? How can it benefit my roommates, perhaps, if you live in a home with other people? Well, it benefits others by how you and I, as Christians, live our lives. The question for us is, then, how do we live out this paradox of Christmas in front of other people? You do know that that as a Christian, the spotlight's on you. Right? Have you experienced that before? You know, people are looking. We are supposed to be different. Right? So how can we live this out, that this story can make an, have an impact on other people's lives? How can we live this out so that we can be doing what Jesus commanded us to do, to make disciples of all nations? How can we live this out to be storing up treasures in heaven, people for the kingdom of God? How can we live this out to enhance the kingdom of our Savior. Because, you know, soon we're all going to be there, right? I mean, if a thousand years is like a day and a day is like a thousand years, in 15 minutes everybody in this room is going to be there. So we need to be making an impact for the kingdom of God as we live on this planet. How can we do that? Well, I think the first thing, I, I came up with three lessons that we can learn from the Christmas story to show us how to live the Christian life on this earth until we pass into our new home with our Lord. First is that none of us should judge by appearances. If you think of this Christmas story, the lonely baby and where he was, that there was not even a room in a hotel for him around. He had to, his parents had to take him to a barn. We should not judge by appearances, especially those that perhaps impress the world greatly. You know, we, we tend to, all of us tend to, think more of a person that has a prominent position in the world. 
You know, if, if they're a prominent professional, a movie star, a singer, or an actor, or a professional athlete, I mean, we do, don't we? We, we, we think more highly of them. And James, um, Jesus' half-brother, noted that in, that in his day that the best seats of the assemblies, the best seats of the churches were saved and given to those of prominent position based on how they were dressed. But he also rebuked those actions of the people. In James chapter 2, he said, Have you not then made distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and the heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? You know, if the birth of Jesus teaches us anything at all, it teaches us that God can choose to hide the greatest of gifts in the poorest of packages. He wrapped his own son in swaddling cloths and placed him in a manger. So don't judge by appearances. That's one way we can live this Christian life out, the paradox of Christmas. Secondly, we should learn that it is impossible for you and I to judge the end of anything by its beginning. The end of this story, the story of Jesus' birth, is found in, in these fantastic praise passages of the book of Revelation in which the whole creation is brought forth to praise God. We see in Revelation 5, 9 that there's these 24 elders which represent the church falling down on their faces before the Lamb and singing a new song. Revelation 5, 9 says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people of God from every tribe and language and nation. On top of that, you have many angels numbering. Scripture tells us myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then after the church is bowing in worship of God, and after these thousands and thousands of angels bowing in worship of God, verse 13 of, of Revelation 5, 9 tells us that every living creature worships Jesus Christ by saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Certainly there is no more exalted position, no more brilliant success in all of the universe than that. Yet, who would have ever imagined that outcome from such a lowly beginning in Bethlehem so many centuries ago? The third lesson that we can learn from the Christmas paradox, God becoming man, is to recognize the beauty of the gift of Christ from God the Father. When we see it for what it really is, it should impact the way we relate to other people. It should impact us in the way we relate to God himself, or maybe we should say it will impact us. I want to quote a kind of a, a couple of paragraphs from a sermon from Walter Meyer on the theme of the gift of God to mankind. Listen to this quote. The great gift of Christ is granted not to God's friends, but to his enemies, to those who in their sins have risen up against God and declared war against the Almighty. To every one of us suffering as we and our world are under the destructive powers of sin, God offers his gift of unspeakable grace. Christmas does not offer rejoicing to a selected few. It cries out joy to the world. We stand before that supreme and saving truth, the holy of holies of our Christian faith. 
the blessed assurance that Christ Jesus came into the world not to build big and costly churches, not to give his followers earthly power and rule, but, and this is why the angels sang their praise, to save sinners. He came not to establish social service, social consciousness, social justice, but first and foremost, he came to seal our salvation. No wonder that the apostle calls the, calls the mercy of God as shown by the gift of Christ unspeakable. It goes beyond the limit of human speech. Just by beholding the glare of the sun, men lose their power of vision, so raising our eyes to the brilliance of Jesus, the Son of Righteousness, we are blinded by the splendor of the greatest gift that God himself could bestow. Christ came to save, blessed assurance, but more, he came to save to the uttermost so that no sin is too great, no sinner too vile to be blessed when penitent and believing by this gift, end quote. You know, when you think about it, it's really not only the gift, but the gracious manner in which the gift was given that exceeds all of our powers and all of our description. And Contemplating those thoughts leaves me right where the Apostle Paul was when he penned the words, the eight words of 2 Corinthians 9.15. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Amen? Pray with me, please. Father, we are truly amazed that you would come to us in such a fashion such a low and humble state that Jesus Christ would leave the throne of glory to come and dwell with us, to come as a baby in a manger, to grow up and live in a part of the world that is dusty and dirty and all of the temptations and trials that we face, our Lord faced, yet without sin. Father, when we contemplate the great gift, the indescribable gift of God with us, all we can do is bow our knees and say thank you. For in the fullness of time, you sent forth your Son, in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, in order that we, we here today, who are full of condemning sin, might be fully emptied of our sin and filled up with the fullness of God, and experience the fullness of your joy. Father, I pray that we would experience the fullness of Christ today, that we would know in our hearts the outpouring of grace upon grace, that the glory of the only Son from the Father would shine into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, and that we would be amazed that Christ can be, can be so real to us today, Lord. Thank you for this indescribable gift. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.